Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. Well, good morning to you and happy Sunday. My name is indeed Alistair, if we've not yet met. I normally hang out down in Beldivis, um, but I love being up here with all of you beautiful Cannington people. Now, I don't know what your week has looked like, but this three-week period is some of my favorite of the year. I can stay up late at night watching men in tight lycra. It's the Tour de France. If there was any other time at which I made this confession, you would all have grave uh, reason for concern. But I do love the Tour de France. It is a phenomenal race for those of you unaware of it. It is a cycling race. It's one of the biggest events on the world cycling calendar. And it, it takes place over three weeks. So for 21 days, uh, a bunch of guys on bikes ride between 100 and 200 kilometers every day. And at the very end of it, one person wins it. They've got the lowest time overall. And when I sit and I watch the Tour de France, I, if I can think of one word that describes what these guys can do, it's discipline. It is a disciplined thing to sit on a bicycle for any length of time, let alone for five hours every day for 21 days. And these guys are super disciplined. And in fact, I myself got into riding road bikes when I was about 20 years old. And so I've been doing it for about 10 years now. And unfortunately for me, road cycling was unfortunately not the final destination. It became the gateway drug, if you will, to a much more complicated sport, which is triathlon, which is swimming, biking, and running. And I love to watch the triathlon. And one of my favorite triathletes of all time is Alastair Brownlee, not Alastair Cochran. That would be a bit arrogant. But Alastair Brownlee is a British guy. He is one of the best of all time. Two-time Olympic champion, multiple World Series wins, the most first-place podiums in the World Triathlon kind of series. And he has a younger brother by the name of Johnny. We're just going to watch a short clip of these two guys in the 2016 final race of the World Triathlon Series. Johnny has to win. And to be sure of taking the title and right now he seems to have lost control of his legs and this is worrying oh and he's starting to slow and there is a little way to go there's half a k to go and johnny is running out of time and he's losing he's losing his sense of direction this is worrying oh goodness me this is a horrible sight Jonathan Brownlee has lost it now and has staggered to a stop at the side of the course and Alistair's stopped to help him along and Alistair is going to try and carry his brother home. Dramatic scenes in Cozumel as the Olympic champion carries his younger brother towards the podium. Oh my god, I cannot believe what we are seeing here. Matt, is this allowed? Is he allowed to help his brother? You know, is that part of the rules? I'm not too sure. We've never seen anything like this before. Unbelievable scenes. Unbelievable scenes in Cozumel. The Brownlee brothers arm in arm, but it's not by way of celebration. Henry Schumann's celebrating. He's going to win this race in Cozumel out of nowhere. But we have to be concerned about the health of Jonathan Brownlee and they're not even on the final stretch yet. Schumann wins in Cozumel. The brothers are coming home arm in arm to finish in second and third but Johnny can hardly stand. 
and Alistair is having to drag him across the line and pushing him home, pushing him home for second. Johnny finishes in second. Goodness me, what an incredible conclusion here in Cozumel. I've never seen anything like that anywhere in world sports. Worrying scenes all round. Now, for me, this is one of the most ridiculous sporting moments. I, it's 2016. To put this in context, okay, that is the tail end of an Olympic distance triathlon. They've just done a 1.5K swim, a 40K bike, and a 10K run. Johnny Brownlee's time split for that 10K was 32 minutes. So if you're any familiar with running at all, that means he's running 3 minute 15 kilometers for 10Ks after swimming and biking. So that is the context in which we're looking at here. And it's absolutely ridiculous to me because... These guys are the elite of elites. And there's so many things that are happening in this race in the context of it that make it so special. So this race is at the end of 2016. They've just had the Rio de Janeiro Olympics where Alistair Brownlee got gold. Johnny Brownlee got silver. They were separated by 10 seconds. They won first and third in the 2012 London Olympic Games. And they've been these brothers that have been in it forever. And this was Johnny's opportunity to take the world title. And the way that the world triathlon works is that you get points per race, similar to F1, and the most points at the end of the season wins. Now, in this specific race, Johnny Brownlee needed to finish four places ahead of Mario Mola. And what Johnny and Alistair did not know was where Mario was in the context of the race. And so Alistair is shouldering Johnny's load and pushes him over the line as an act of selflessness, but also because he's trying to maximize the opportunity for Johnny to win the world title. Now, unfortunately, Mario Mola did finish fifth, Johnny finished second, and because they were only separated by three places, Mario ended up winning the overall title for that year, but one of the greatest sporting moments of history. Now, these guys are training partners and they're best friends. They spend between 25 and 30 hours a week training together. They live in Yorkshire, in England, and they live outdoors in the cold throughout winter, and they are knocking out the most ridiculous training sessions. But I would say that their discipline for these guys as triathletes is really a result of good habits, right? They sleep really well. They maximize between 8 and 10 hours of sleep. They have a really good nutritional diet to the point where Alistair Brownlee doesn't eat cake because he says that the sugar changes the way that his body digests the carbohydrates he needs that he takes while he's on the bike. It's absolutely bizarre the amount of excellent habits that these guys have, and it's all a result of these disciplines. But ultimately, these good habits are because they have self-control. I would feel like after a race like that, you might want a piece of cake. And for some reason, Alistair has the self-control not to do it. Now, how did these guys get into triathlon? It's actually super interesting. When they were younger, their dad was a cross-country runner. He wasn't particularly good. He just did it for something fun on the weekends. And for these two guys, they saw dad running and they went, well, that's what we'll do too. And so they started running cross-country and Alistair Brownlee actually won the national championships for the juniors at 13 years old for cross-country. And that ended up for him turning into a career in triathlon. And the reality is for us today that we need to recognize that our motives are going to be unrelated to our outcomes when it comes to the concept of discipline. Whatever our motive is doesn't actually change what the outcome is if we can be disciplined about it. 
Now, a really great example of this is a guy called Ryan Shelton. He is a podcaster and a media personality, but he wanted to get off his phone. He had a big phone addiction, and he thought to himself, well, what if I just make this like a doctor's order? You know, like if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, that's it, you can't eat X, Y, Z anymore, you can't do it. And so he thinks to himself, well, what if I imagine that a doctor told me I am no longer allowed to use an iPhone? And so he thought, okay, that's great. So he puts his iPhone in a drawer, he goes to the store, he buys a Nokia, and he used a Nokia for six months. Because what he recognized was that if I make this a need, then it will change the way that I do it. And what he recognized was that our oughts to can become a want to. Six months after donating his phone to his drawer, he's able to go back to an iPhone in a way that he's not addicted to it, and he can use it in a way that he wants to use it. Because he's now gone from a place of, I really need to change the way I'm using this, to now I don't even want to use it. And so it's a really important thing for us to recognize that in the context of discipline, we are trying to change our oughts to into want to. Another way you might think about this is that we want to come to a place of being able to enjoy rather than endure. Literally, you talk to these triathlon guys, they love training. Sometimes they'll say they love training more than they love racing because they just enjoy it. It's no longer about endurance or getting through the session. It's about enjoying it. Now, it's no secret that people that are effective in life, people generally that are successful, we would describe those people as disciplined people. And the reason that we do that is because you and I recognize that discipline facilitates progress. There is no way for you to get better at something unless you are disciplined in your approach towards it. If someone is learning piano, they cannot do it by thinking about piano. They have to go and sit at a piano and play it. You can't get better at playing golf unless you get a golf club and practice hitting a ball. You can't get better at a sport unless you practice it. This is why professional athletes spend so much time training because they know that, that the discipline will facilitate progress. But it's bigger than that, because not only will that discipline facilitate progress, it will also facilitate prosperity. If you are better at things, you will be better at them, and people will pay you more money for it. This is like kind of the whole point of life, right? Is like, can I find a skill that I can sell to someone else, and can I get good enough that they will pay me enough money for me to be able to work and enjoy that? And the reality is if we want to get to that point, we have to embrace the concept of delayed gratification, which is really difficult for us in a modern first world context because everything we've got, we want instantly. You live in a world where afterpay exists. You want this, but buy it now and pay it off over four cycles or whatever it is. I've never done it. My, in my, the guy that sold me my mortgage told me not to do it, so I didn't. Now, what is delayed gratification really? It's doing what we ought to do now so that we can do what we want to do later. It's kind of the premise that our whole world works on. You can't get a job unless you've had an education, and you can't get an education unless you go to school. And so delayed gratification is the reality of our world, but we try to avoid it and we try to get around it by trying to get things instantly. And this is why discipline is so difficult, because it is teaching us delayed gratification. And so with all of this in mind, we are in part three now of this Faithful series. And the reason that we're doing this series is because we look at the final words of Jesus when He leaves earth, and He says to all of humanity, follow me. Now, for some reason, the church or Christians in general, we've reduced this active statement of follow me to 
believe in me. And we can see that those are two very different things where follow requires me to do something, belief does not. And the reason that we're asking these questions is because we're asking ourselves, what would I do if I knew that God was with me? Would my life be the same tomorrow as it is right now if I truly believed that God was with me? In our first week, we looked at the concept of big faith. And we looked at what this meant. And what we kind of highlighted here was that faith is different to hope or belief because faith has an object. We would say that a great example of thinking about this is a chair, right? You don't sit in a chair and hope that it's going to hold you up. You have faith that it's going to hold you up. And the way that you exercise that faith is by sitting on the chair. You can look at the chair and you can believe that the chair exists. And you can believe and hope that the chair will hold you up. But it's only until you actually sit on that chair that you can recognize that you have faith in its actual structural integrity. Last week, we looked at this concept of personal ministry. And we looked at this idea that despite the fact God can do whatever He wants in the world by Himself, He chooses to invite you and I into that narrative and into that story to minister to the people around us, which is powerful and it's amazing that God Himself would partner with people like you and me to do what He wants to do and has been doing that for thousands upon thousands of years. And so that brings us to this week where we are looking at private discipline. So what does it look like to fuel our faith in a world filled on empty? And today we are looking at private disciplines. Now the key thing that we need to recognize here, private meaning personal, but also discipline, right? The key that we really want to take away is that these are things that we pre-decided, right? You can't accidentally be disciplined. So it's kind of a, it's a juxtaposition. You cannot accidentally be disciplined. And so if we go back to Jesus, right, Jesus says, follow me. It's a personal invitation and it's a personal request from Jesus to follow him. And the danger, I think, for all of us in the world is that we're no longer following, we're just Christians. Which is terrifying because the concept of Christian is only referenced three times in the biographies of Jesus and the early church. Three times. And every time, it's in reference to the fact that Christian was a racial slur given to people that followed Jesus. So what that means is, you can do almost anything you want, and you can say that that is Christian. Because there is no context or definition as to what it is. What is extremely clear to us, though, is what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. And so what we're going to look at right now is a small story. It's a bit of a biography of the early Jesus people. And we're going to look at what it looked like just after Jesus has been on earth. What was this community like? It says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now I read that and I feel immediately challenged. I know that I am not selling my house to pay for someone else's need. And I know that for my own self. And so when I read this, 
I am right here with all of us and going, that is a challenging vision for what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so with that vision in mind, I want us to look at three things that you and I can do as people that can emulate this concept of following Jesus. The first one is the concept of daily devotions. Now, daily devotions is like a Christianese term. It's a language that Christians might be familiar with. But if you're new to following Jesus or you don't know Jesus at all, essentially it is taking a significant portion of time in our day and giving that to spending time with God. That can be done in a bunch of different ways for a bunch of different people, and everyone kind of finds their own rhythm. Some people will purchase a book that takes them through a kind of passage from, from one of Jesus' stories and explains that and shows you how to get meaning out of it. Other people uh, might just listen to like an app like Lectio 365, which is a guided meditation thing, or you might just have someone that opens up a Bible and reads through it and tries to understand what God is saying. You might have people that just sit in the silence and in the quiet of the morning and just think through everything that's going on in their life and bring those as prayers to God. But the key thing is that the reason we do it is because it's actually what Jesus did. And if we look at the biographies of Jesus, there's 42 times in which Jesus is documented as leaving the people he is with to go and be by himself and with God. And that's considerable when you think about the fact he was only on earth for a very limited period of time. He was only with people for a very limited period of time. And he himself said, spending time, with, spending time with God is going to be just as important as spending time with you people. And he marqueed time to do it. There's one example here in, uh, by a guy called Mark. And he says this about Jesus. He says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, there are two adjectives in here that might be concerning for some of us. This is the 10.30. It's very and it's early. Now, you might not believe in that. You might say, I don't believe in times before 10 a.m. But don't think about it that way. I think think about it this way. Don't stay up late for something that you wouldn't get up early for. Now, I know that everyone's on different schedules, right? Depending on, on what, you, what you're doing with your life, you might be on a different schedule. And the concept here is not get up at 4 a.m. and spend three hours in prayer. That's not what we're trying to say. What we're trying to say is make sure that you have allocated that time and you pre-decided to do it. And don't be like me, who used to stay up until 1 or 2 in the morning playing League of Legends at 28 years old. The worst part is I still suck. I'm iron four. I'm literally the worst in Australia. I'm literally the worst. The bottom half a percent, it says 99.5%. That's how bad I am. And yet, for some reason, I thought this was a good idea. It's a game designed for teenagers. My goodness. Now, I would say that if you're going to spend this time with Jesus and you're new to it, I would say the best place that you can start is actually by looking at the stories of Jesus and looking at his biography. So there's four to choose from, all written by different guys, but kind of similar and different at the same time. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they've all got a different perspective. I would recommend to start in Mark. It's the most direct. It's the most to the point. But why I recommend that is because the reality is that Jesus changed the world. No one else on the face of the earth has ever done as much in history as Jesus did. And we have got the opportunity to read firsthand accounts of what his life looked like and why those stories changed the world. And when we take the time to read those stories and let them invest in our lives, not only do we see how they change the world that Jesus physically was in, but they start to change the world that we are physically in as well. And I think it's really powerful, and I think that is a really, really great thing for us to do. The reason for that is because that reading a biography of Jesus is different. 
because it still speaks spiritually to us today. There's something different about reading these biographies because they're not simply just words on a page. It's not like reading Harry Potter. There is something that a spiritual component that we can't quite describe, we can't quite explain. And I haven't got empirical evidence for this. I don't have a peer-reviewed study that says if you read XYZ, you'll have XYZ spiritual encounter. I just have my own life experience and the experience of those who have read these stories and then witnessed their lives change in front of their eyes. And so I'd encourage you that reading these biographies is different to reading normal words. Okay, so this is the first thing. We kind of want to look at this idea of devoting some time each day to looking at Jesus. The second thing that really strikes me in this group of early Jesus followers is intentional generosity. And I think the key here is intentional. It's not accidental. It's not like, oh, I might give if I see a need. Or there may be potentially I'll wait and see if someone needs something. It is, no, I'm going to intentionally set aside money and time for what is really going to be the most impactful. The way that we talk about this here at The Rocks um, is by looking at this idea that Jesus is a giver, not a taker. As we follow Jesus more and more, we become more like Him, and so it naturally follows that we will become to be just as generous as Jesus was. And as we grow in this concept of generosity and giving, we start to look more like Jesus. But we want to be intentional as we can. And so the way that we talk about this is by using the concept of priority percentage giving. Priority because we do make it a priority. And percentage because we allocate that money at the beginning of our pay cycle or our time cycle. And we believe that that giving is because we are becoming like Jesus. Now, the motivation behind this is really, really simple. I've got a triangle here, which is, I would say, the way that our world is kind of designed. We would say that as a culture... You want to take your finances and your time, the key resources that you possess, and you want to live as much as you possibly can. You want to do as much as you can, see as much as you can, buy as much as you can, see as many people as you possibly can, invest in as many things as you possibly can. And once you've done all of that, if you've got anything left over, you should save that. But don't save it for something important. Save it for another thing to buy. And then at the very end of all that, if you've got anything left... Just give that little bit. Now, that is exhausting and it's challenging. And what I find beautiful about the kingdom of Jesus is that he takes this triangle and he flips it on its head. And he actually says, the prime foundation of what it looks like to follow me is to give of your money and of your time first. It's the foundation of what we do. Secondly, once we've given, we're going to take a bit of cash and we're going to make sure that we save it because we want to be responsible. We don't want to just be a single generation type of person. We want to be a multi-generation type of person. So we're going to save. And then once we've given and once we've saved, whatever's left, we can live on what is remaining. This is a really big challenge because it requires a lot of discipline. But it also, I would say, more challenging is the philosophical nature of it because for some reason we as human beings... We get tetchy when anyone talks about how we use our money. And the reason for that is because we have to let go of what we actually have confidence in. If we are wanting to hold on to our finance and onto our time, it's actually because we've got confidence in our capacity to manage it. If we're holding on to our time saying, I don't want to volunteer, I don't want to serve, I don't want to give of my time, it's actually because you believe that your time management skills will make you a more effective human being. 
same for me. I look at my bank balance each time I get paid and I'm like, is that enough to last the next fortnight? I'm not sure. And I try to take control back because I believe that if I can manage my money correctly, then I will have the confidence to continue on. But this is not true because Jesus does not want your money. Jesus wants you. And if your confidence is in your own finance or your own time management, you can't have any confidence in Jesus to bring you through. It is in a moment of extreme and radical generosity that Jesus gives everything he has. He gives up his very identity in heaven to come to earth as a broken, fallen human body. And in that broken, fallen human body, he lives the life that you and I never could and then gives his life so that we could know him. Jesus is the ultimate definition of giving. His triangle doesn't even have three levels. It's just got one. He just gives it all. And he's saying to us, hey, when you are trying to hoard your money and your time, you're trying to control something that you should be putting faith in. And that is Jesus himself. Now, <clears throat> the third one from this kind of community, which maybe seems a bit strange, is the concept of corporate worship. So we look at this group of people, and it's very clear their lives are integrated and their lives are fully put together. And corporate worship, what we mean by this is the idea that as a gr larger group of Jesus followers, we can come together and we can say good things about God. We can praise God. We can say, God, you're good. Look at the way that you've changed my life. And we can come together to worship God. But the concept seems strange in the concept of private discipline, but I think it's not. Because at the end of the day, the only reason that you're here today is because you came. No one else woke you up this morning to get you here. You woke yourself up. You dressed yourself. You got in the car or took a bus and you made it here for this gathering. And it's actually a discipline that we need to practice because coming together as a group is different than when we're by ourselves. In fact, Jesus himself would say that something happens personally when we can gather corporately. He said it differently. He said it slightly differently. He said this, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. And what Jesus is telling us is that there is a difference when we are in the room together. Yes, indeed, we need time where we can spend intentional, personal time with Jesus. But there is something different when you enter into a gathering like this where you have multiple people on multiple different journeys at multiple different experiences with God. But the temptation for us in this modern church culture is to replace our Monday with Sunday. And I want to make it really clear that as intentional as we are about our Sundays, that Sundays will never be a replacement for your Monday. Because at the end of the day, you are someone who is wanting or potentially interested in following Jesus. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here on a Sunday. And so if this is a door that is potentially opening for you, I want to put the challenge before you that Sunday is not a replacement for Monday. But despite that, on a Sunday is a hopeful and encouraging and inspiring experience. Why? Because I becomes us. And in a moment on a Sunday where you feel alone, doesn't matter what week you've had, whether you lost your job, whether your kids aren't talking to you, whether you crashed your car, you walk into a space. All it is is a room. It's a bit of concrete and some carpet. But we walk into a space and we finally realize that we're not alone in whatever the journey is that we're walking. That's why it's a private discipline because you still need to rock up. But in this moment, you realize that I becomes us. And why is that important? Because when we belong to an us, we are never alone. We can never be alone. 
And so with all this in mind, I want us to put forward a 30-day challenge. For the next 30 days, every day, I want you to think about this. First minutes of your day, first dollars of our income, and first day of our weeks. Because I genuinely believe that these private disciplines have the capacity to change the world. The series is called Faith Full, fueling your life on a world on empty. And I believe that these habits, these disciplines, will change your lives. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Alistair, you've been talking for a long time and you've showed this really strange video at the beginning and I'm a little bit confused. I didn't show it to you just because I like triathlon, even though I do. I showed it to you because Alistair Brownlee never trained to come third. Alistair Brownlee trained to come first. It just happened that when he was in a moment where he could have seized victory, someone else needed his support. Your private disciplines are so important, but they're not just important for you, even though they are. They actually could be disciplines for someone else because you're walking in here on a Sunday morning and there could be someone who is collapsing in their last 500 meters and all they need is someone to walk alongside them and put their arm around them and carry them through that season. And you don't know whether the disciplines that you've been doing are for your own good or for their good. And that is the beautiful thing about Jesus that He invites us in to be able to play that role. So not only would I say that Alistair Brownlee ridiculous, but never trained to become third, trained to win, I would say that Jesus is a better Alistair. And that's a double-pronged thing. Not only is he a better Alistair Brownlee, but he's a better Alistair Cochran. And you can insert your name there. Jesus is a better Annika. Jesus is a better Chitra. Jesus is a better Angel. Why? Because you and I are not Alistair Brownlee in that story. We're Johnny. We are collapsing in the final 500 of the race that we are running and Jesus walks alongside us and picks us up and carries us through the journey that we never could finish. Why? Because He loves us and He wants us and He pursues us. He doesn't want anything more than just you and me. And He gave it all. He gave up a throne in heaven to pursue you, to carry you through this life and this world and for all eternity because He loves you. And so why are we doing this series? Because we believe that that kind of faith in a God who gave up everything for you will change this world. We believe that God is involved and invested in today, tomorrow, this week, next week, and not just here on a Sunday, but in your day-to-day life. And we are so passionate about what God can do if we just open up our hands and say yes. And so with all of this in mind, we're going to stand to our feet and we're actually going to sing again together because it would feel weird for us to talk about this value of worship as a whole group. Why don't we jump to our feet? We're going to sing Firm Foundation once more together. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website. Visit therocks.church.com.